First question, does death scare you? Does it scare you? I ask that because I don't think we often consider death in the American culture. I have once heard that your passion for the resurrection is directly tied to your fear of death. So your excitement for the resurrection is tied to how terrifying death is. And in my opinion, in American culture, we've done a great job at hiding its horror. We don't really fear it like we should, so I think the concept of the resurrection, when we come here, it's kind of exciting, but when we get home, give me another chocolate Easter bunny, I'm just fine. You know, it's sort of like that's what Easter's all about. This concept of resurrection is distanced. Do you remember, let's say, think back when you were a little kid or just remember the first time you ever faced death. Do you remember it? For me, there's two very distinct images. The first one, I was an altar boy at a Roman Catholic church. I was a server, and I was invited to serve at a very, what I would say, prominent funeral in our church. I was asked to carry the head candle. There's casket, four servers on each side. I was at the head of the casket. And I can remember while the priest was putting incense over the body before they closed it, I was noticing how shiny the man's head was. It was really shiny. I was young, okay? I was a young server. But here's the problem. As I was looking, the candle was tilting. And as the candle was tilting, the wax was dripping onto the man's forehead that was dead. I was imagining him going, ah, will you stop that? He didn't wake up, but I couldn't stop laughing. It's bad. You ever get one of those things where you can't stop? Oh, and the priest was mad. Oh, was he mad. The second time, about the same time, I was with my cousin in a, a state park in Ohio, and we were on this hill, and I'm telling you, I saw this family leaving the state park, and I saw two drunk guys going 70 miles an hour, hit head on, smashed it, I saw a kid fly out of the window. I saw the dad hit his head on the windshield. I saw blood all over. It was shocking. So for me, death was strange. I thought it was sort of a source of humor, but it was also something that was like a, it just was, it was like a movie. Didn't make any sense to me. I was removed far from it. I didn't really understand it. It was non-threatening to me. I was young, I, man, I had my whole life to live. It didn't mean, mean anything to me. But I'll tell you, after you've been a pastor for a long time, especially in one location, I've been here now 21 years, I think longer than that. I think that's about right. I'm not too sure. I'm not good with numbers. Or if you've lost your best friend, or if you've lost your father, death has a way of revealing bloody, sharp teeth. You finally see it for what it is. It's a horrible, shadowy monster that sneaks in unsuspecting and it steals away the people you love dearly. And death is a monster. Death is a terrible, terrible monster. There's only one weapon against death. Only one that I know of. Absolutely only one. And that's why we come today on Easter because we celebrate that weapon, Christ's resurrection. It's the victory over death. It's why we sing. Because we're the only ones who can, honestly. Because without the resurrection, the world's doomed. It's, it's doomed. Let me show you. Open up 
to the book of John chapter 5. And we are going to look at five verses. Book of John. John is the fourth gospel. John is a disciple of Jesus. John knew Jesus intimately well. He's best, one of his best friends. And John is clear as crystal. Listen to what he says starting in verse 24 of John 5. And we're going to read to verse 29. If you have a red letter Bible, it should be read, this part. It says, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. And he has given him authority to execute judgment because he's the Son of Man. Do not marvel at this. For an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice. And they'll come out. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment or condemnation. Before we go any further, let's just bow in prayer. Let's just settle our hearts a second. Let's let the Holy Spirit teach us. Let's pray. Lord, these verses are very... Clear, uh, but also very, oh, they're harsh. Help us, God, to face them with um, honesty. And I just pray that your spirit would be at work right now in our hearts so that, God, that this resurrection day wouldn't just be about chocolate bunnies. Thank you, Father, for what you have done through the guarantee of your son's death and resurrection. We love you, Lord, in Christ's name. Amen. All right, I want you to uh, begin with this question. What would you do? I'm going to paint a scenario for you, and I'm going to ask you to think through what would you do. This is a scenario I've encountered a number of times, but I encountered it very specifically two weeks ago. I am not going to give names. I'm not going to talk about faces, but this really happened. Question, what would you do? You are called to a hospital. A person is in poor health. They are dying on a bed. You go to visit them. You find them in a dark room. They have labored breathing. They have tubes sticking out from everywhere. They are hours away from a surgery for a major medical procedure that is intended to keep them alive. The doctor has just told this patient there's a good chance you won't survive the procedure. So what he heard is that the procedure that is meant to save them could also kill them. person in the bed looks at you with tears in their eyes and they say, I'm scared. Not only do I have some doubts about my own faith, but listen to what they said, but I have not lived a good life. I am not sure God will even want me in. What do you say? What do you do? Honest, honestly. There's a heartfelt human tendency, it's in all of us, that when you see pain, you want to alleviate it as soon as possible. I think it's true for most people, especially for pastors. 
In this moment, we uh, quickly jump to statements of assurance. It's kind of the natural default mode. You say stuff like, you'll make it, don't worry. Don't worry. You try to calm the situation. You're going to be fine. God will get you out of this. How do you know? Especially when you're facing a 50-50 chance they might not survive. They can't make it on sentimentalism and patronizing words. Why do we feel we have the right to make everything so nice? And then there are those who offer what I would call their spiritually enlightened position. There's a lot of these people that really think they think they know what they're talking about. They'll say stuff like, you worry too much, everyone. Everyone will make it into heaven. Don't you know that the universe is loving? Death is like a warm blanket, and, and the life beyond is a better place. Or you've probably heard those, you know, the people that really are cool when they face death. Dude, man, you'll be partying up there with Uncle Bob. Hey. It's crazy. I've done funerals like that. It's weird. When you have people come up here and they talk about their dead one, they said they're up there partying right now. And everybody in the audience goes, <laughs> it's weird. Some people say, well, Oprah said you see a light and you feel a great big hug. And with a wink, some will even say, when you do go there, man, put some good words for me with the man upstairs. How do people know what eternity is like on the other side if they've never been there? Who gives them the right to speak for heaven? Spiritually ignorant statements at times like this are not only eternally irresponsible, but they are arrogantly naive and they're dangerous. They're dangerous. Death is serious. The person you are speaking to may close their eyes and never open them again. They may be a mere two, just think about that. They may be a mere two or three hours from meeting the creator of the universe face to face. We, we should not trifle with this thing called death. We, we play with it far too often. Here is what I do, because it's what I've been hired to do. Number one, I try to be as clear as crystal. I try to be clear. Number two, I try to stand on a foundation of somebody who has been there on the other side and has come back. And number three, I try to t offer real hope. Too often we either make things up or make it religiously complicated. We speculate. We lean on stupid traditions. And I know I'm not allowed to say stupid, but sometimes we lean on stupid traditions like putting holy water on a head while chanting Latin. Why is Latin greater than English? Tell me. We lean on writings from people who've never been to the other side. Here's what I do. Look at your Bible. I go to John 5, 24. And I did. Listen to this verse. This verse is amazing. We're just going to walk through it. And if you do have a red letter edition of your Bible, this verse is all in red because they are the recorded words of Jesus. I understand the whole Bible is inspired. Every word is from God. But to be able to tell somebody those are Jesus' words, there's a special, what I would say, power to them. So let's walk through this. First two words, truly, truly, and then he says, I say to you, but truly, 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 truly. King James, verily, verily. Some versions, 
I'm telling you the truth. In other words, when Jesus speaks, he doesn't lie. And did you know Jesus speaks only what the Father wants him to speak? So in a sense, Jesus never just gives an opinion. He never speculates. He never deviates from God's will. He tells the truth. Look at it like this. You go to a car lot. You see a car you like. Looks good. All of a sudden comes this guy. He's got a big Hawaiian tie on, blue and orange. He shakes your hand. It's real greasy. And he's got grease back hair and kind of tall crack ass. Because I'll offer you that car right now. Right now for a good deal. It's a really good deal. It just doesn't seem too good to be true. It's incredibly cheap. Do you trust the guy? With the greasy hand, the sweaty palm, do you trust that guy? And then all of a sudden, out of the door of the building where the cars are parked in front, another guy comes out. And comes out. He's wearing a white shirt and khaki pants. And he comes up to you and goes, what's going on? Can I help you? I tell him I'm interested in this car, and I told him what the price of the first guy gave me, and I look around, the first guy's gone. Where'd he go? He disappeared. Then I ask this guy, what's the price? He takes out a card and writes the price on the back of the card and hands it to me. I notice that on the front of the card, the name of this man is the same one that's on the marquee of the store. Hmm. I ask him if he owns the lot. He says, well... My dad does, but he has given it over to me a few years ago to run it for him. So in a way, it's mine. Do I believe this guy or the guy with the wide Hawaiian tie? Did you know Jesus owns the car lot? Did you know this world is his because his father gave it to him? So when he says truly, truly, we can believe him. Look at the next words. Here's my word. So truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word, two questions on hears, what does it mean to hear, and what are the words that we are to hear? Hear in this case means audible understanding. I listen, oh yeah, that makes sense. And the words are, at the time of this writing, his spoken words, but now they are the words that are recorded for us in this book. That's what he means by words. These words are God-breathed. They have come from him to us. So here's the question. Raise your hand if you can hear me right now. Raise your hand. Okay. Raise your hand if you have one of these books. Okay, so what the, you can hear then in the way that Jesus is talking. So then he says, and believes in the one and believes him who sent me. And believes him who sent me. Belief has the idea that you trust and embrace what is said because of him. Because of the trustworthy character of the person saying it. The first salesperson I heard had that big wide tie and stuff. I heard him, but I wouldn't believe him as far as I could throw him. Now the second guy, I heard him too, but you know what? He was very trustworthy, so the price he gave me, I could bank on it. That's what belief means. Belief means there's fancy old-fashioned words, which means to apprehend, understand, and appropriate. It means I apprehend it, I see it, I understand it, and then I appropriate, I grab it. 
more, what I would say, more common words, you could say it like this. I see it, I want it, I trust it, and I grab it. I see it, I see the word, I want it, I trust it, and I grab it. It becomes me. That's belief. That's what belief means. The person I met at the hospital, I asked him very clearly, do you believe this word? He said, yes. I asked the man in the hospital, do you want the payment Jesus has made for you on the cross? He said, yes. Do you believe Jesus made that payment? He said, yes. Which leads to the next word. Look what it says. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me, it's one tiny little word, H-A-S, has. Do you know what that word means? It's mine right now in my possession. If I throw you a football and you catch it, you have. I have this football. If I sneeze on you and you catch a cold, you have the cold. It's present. Present tense. It's a statement of present possession. It is now yours. Can, can Jesus be any more clear? There are two important lessons I think that we need to kind of clear up because they're in here inherently. You won't see them, but they're crucial and you need to see them. And there are two lessons. Lesson number one, you've got to listen closely to this. Lesson number one, if people don't hear, or you could say it like this, but they don't care about what they hear, they don't care about what Jesus says, they remain in what is called the default position. What is the default position? Judgment, condemnation. So if I choose not to do anything, I'm, I'm in judgment, standing in it. Judgment means you have punishable guilt hanging on you. You, you just can't do nothing because you stand as it is right now, condemned. The man in the hospital bed had good reason to fear. He said he knew he did things he was guilty for. And when you are about to face holiness while guilty, you should have palpable dread. You should be terrified. You can't say, say hi to Uncle Bob for me. That's silly and irresponsible. It's really like facing a criminal court judge with bloody hands and a murder weapon in your coat pocket. Some of you might say this, though, when you hear what I just said. You might say this, yeah, but what about those cool-talking pastors and fancy-smiling preachers on TV who say you'll be just fine? What about your neighbor who's nice and they're encouraging and they'll say, don't worry about it? What do you say about the Pope who says you really don't have anything to fear when it comes to hell? Tell me. Tell me, have they been on the other side? Have they seen behind the curtain of death? If they have, I might listen to them. Honestly, I'm a nice guy, I'll listen. But if they haven't been over there, why should I even listen to them? As far as I know, there's only one who's been on the other side. Keep, stay here in John 5, but go to two chapters in front, John 3. John 3 might be the most powerful passage in the Bible. So clear. But I want you to look at two verses that are on, honestly talked about too often. John 3, 31 and 32. Jesus says, it's so cool what he says, he who comes from above is above all. 
So what he's saying here is he's basically inferring he comes from above. What, what is that? That's heaven. That's the other side. And so what he does is he says, He who is of the earth belongs to the earth, speaks an earthly way. He who comes from heaven is above all. He bears witness to what has, he has seen and heard. So he has seen it, and he comes and he bears witness. He tells everybody about what is on the other side. That's what that means. Verse 32, he bears witness to what he's seen and heard. And then here's the sad part, yet no one receives his testimony. Why? Because we are so arrogant. It's human arrogance that we don't listen. John 3.18, same chapter, a few verses before, he's very clear he's going to reinforce lesson number one, John 3.18. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already. That's lesson number one. Lesson number two. Lesson number two is very interesting. Hearing that results in believing, so when I hear and I believe, means that life is mine right now. Eternal life. I enter eternal life right now based on believing. So that word has, it's a, it's a statement of possession, but it also means that I am new brand new. Life is, it goes into me. I'm a new person. Belief is what brings a person from death to life. So while I was working through John 5.24 with this man, as the man was getting ready for surgery, he said this. Now listen very close. He said, even though everything you said makes sense, I still have not lived a good enough life to deserve it. So he said, I, I I hear what you say, but my life's a wreck. I said, then your hearing is faulty, for it hasn't resulted in believing. And he said, no, 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 I believe it, but I don't deserve it. Okay, now you need to stop all the presses right now, and you need to listen, because this may be the most important thing you've ever heard, because this is where everybody gets it wrong. We always say, yeah, I believe it, but I don't deserve it. Who deserves it? Nobody. No one no, not a single soul on this earth deserves heaven. This is not a comparison game between me and Adolf Hitler. This means there's only one who is perfect, and that's Jesus. So it doesn't matter who you are. You don't deserve it. You're right. But according to, to 524, look at 524. Who are we to believe in? Does it say... Does 524 say, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes in themselves, no, it says believes him, in him, in him means eternal life is dependent on trusting the word and character of God the Father. Belief is dependent on trusting the word and character of God the Father, not the works and character of me. If a person thinks they don't deserve it, it means they are trusting in themselves and what they can do. But here's what's even worse than that. So if I say, yeah, I believe it, but I don't deserve it, I'm not only saying I'm really actually trusting in myself, but even worse than that, I'm saying I don't believe God can carry out what he's promised. I don't believe God can do it. I don't think he has it in him. If my badness is what is keeping me out of heaven, then God's goodness is weaker than my badness. See, I don't deserve heaven because I'm not good enough. 
But God promised you what if you believe, well, his goodness can't override my badness. That is so disgustingly arrogant. We're filled with arrogance. It's all over us. I'm attributing more importance and power to me than God. It's like this, there's a lie that drives me crazy. It's in all of our, it's just all over the place. Here's the lie. To be forgiven, you must first forgive, forgive yourself. Didn't God already forgive me on the cross? Well, yeah, yeah, but it, I need to first forgive myself. So you're telling me it wasn't good enough that Jesus took the full frontal assault of God's wrath to get me into heaven. I've got to first forgive myself. So I am a greater judge than God is, is what we're saying. Again, arrogance. We always fall to arrogance. God says believe, and his word says when you do, it is finished. When you believe, everything he promised is yours. It's just belief. Everybody sitting in here, eternal life is waiting and available right here, right now in the presence, and it all rests on the character and the truthfulness of Jesus and his Father. Do you believe Jesus? Can, is he trustworthy? Or have you been to the other side? Well, the next five verses of John 5, he's, we're going to go through them pretty quick, but he's going to talk about four different types of resurrections based on how you respond to verse 24. So how you respond to verse 24 will affect the next four verses. I define resurrection as being brought back to life from the dead. That's what resurrection means. Very simple. You were dead, now you're alive. And there are four instances of resurrections in here. Verse 25 is resurrection number one. It's describing the resurrection of the new birth. Listen to it. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is here now. So it's present. When the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God, and those who hear will live. It is new life that is immediate and eternal because we have been dead in our trespasses and sins, but when I believe, I'm made alive. I'm given a new life. I'm born again. So if you hear, we'll go back to, if you hear but don't believe, as we said earlier, you remain in the default position of being under the condemnation of God. We've talked about this. That means every person who does not believe right now in the present tense is spiritually dead. You're dead. That is one of the reasons you don't respond to the word. It has no appeal to a dead man. Jesus says he, he likes to call his word the bread of life. Have you ever smelled hot bread out of the oven? Oh, it's so good. Did you know dead people can't smell hot bread out of the oven? When my dad died, we had two visitations. My family, after the first visitation, went to dinner. They said, Chris, you're coming. I said, no, I'd just like to spend some time with my, my dad's body. And his coffin was open. He was in there. And nobody was in the funeral home, and I started talking to my dad. He didn't respond, and I was eating a sandwich, and I put it up to his nose. And he did not respond. Do you know why? He was dead. <laughs> he was dead. Dead men do not respond to the bread of life. They don't. But this verse says, when you believe, you, became, you become alive, and his word begins to fill you, and it smells so good. Ah! Oh, new life wants you, causes you to want 
want more. That's resurrection number one. Resurrection number two is verse 26. It's the most important resurrection. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. And the Son's referring to his ability to raise, to bring his dead body from alive from the dead. A cross-reference, John 10, 17, he says, I lay down my life and I take it back up again. So resurrection number two is Jesus' actual historical resurrection. We've been singing about it. It's the most important resurrection for this reason. It's the model and guarantee of all future resurrections. It is the resurrection that gives you certainty that you will rise again. How do I know? Because Jesus did. 1 Corinthians 15 calls it the first fruit. In the Hebrew culture, Leviticus 23, they'd have harvest time, and then they took the first fruits of the harvest. They'd bring it to the priest, so if it'd be wheat, barley, and he'd wave it. He'd wave it. Wave the first fruits, the first fruit offering where they give thanks to God, but it's also a sign that God's blessing has come, and this first fruits is proof that the rest of the harvest has come in. So when Jesus rose from the dead, it's God waving his son, <laughs> saying he rose, and so will you. It's amazing. It's amazing. That's resurrection number two. Resurrection number three is tied to resurrection number one and guaranteed because of resurrection number two, and we find it in verse 29a. Let's read through 27. And he has given him authority to execute judgment because he's a son of man. So Jesus has all authority. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice. Now here's the third resurrection. They'll come out and those who have done good to the resurrection of life. That's resurrection number three. This is the resurrection we usually refer to. This is the resurrection where it says, in a twinkling of an eye, the last trumpet, the dead will rise. That's resurrection number three. So who gets to rise? Uh-oh, this is where it gets tricky. It says, all those who've done good, you might say, wait, wait. Didn't you just get done telling me salvation is based on belief, not works? It's not dependent on my character and works? Yes, but if the first resurrection is true, my works and character will change because I'm now born again. New life has arisen in me, which will change me. Jesus says, they'll know you by your fruit. They'll know you. They'll know you. New life has arisen in me, which will change me. One commentator of this verse said, verse 29 is only a problem for modern readers. All they care about is pitting faith against works. But for New Testament writers, faith is what brings life-altering grace into a believer's heart, which will begin working. All Jesus is saying here is that the changed life is proof that the life has been changed. Pretty simple. That's resurrection number three. And if you have questions about that, I refer you to John 6, 28 and 29. Incredible verses. The disciples say, Jesus, what are the works I must, a man must do? What are the good works? Jesus said, believe in the one that God sent. Now we go to resurrection number four. We find this in 29b. This is about those who have not changed. Here's what it said. And those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. 
We call that hell. Those who cannot smell the sweet aroma of the bread of life, they won't rise in the first resurrection, second or third, but the fourth they will be brought up. They'll have to. Look at verse 28. It's amazing. It's amazing. It says, Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice. There's coming a time when his voice can no longer be ignored. Some may ignore it now, but not when he's sitting on his throne, the great white throne, you won't be ignored. Today when Jesus calls, he calls with the voice of a bridegroom. He woos you. He wants you to love him and want him. It's sweet. It's softer. It's still. But the second time he calls, it's going to be his booming parent voice when he uses your full name. You know when, like your kid, my mom would go, hey, Chris, come here. And I'd be watching Lost in Space. Hey, Chris, come here. I'd be watching Will Robinson, Danger, Danger. And then my mom would be fed up. Christopher Joseph Weeks, come here. Yeah, Ma, what do you want? I didn't hear her on Chris, but boy, did I hear her when she used my full name. Jesus is going to use everybody's full name. On that throne day, the dead will be brought before him, according to Revelations 20. On that throne day, books will be opened. That will talk about your works, your words, your intentions, and the dead will be judged by them. On that throne day, a new body will be fitted for eternal condemnation. That's resurrection four. Avoid this at all costs. So this brings me to lesson number three, the final lesson for the day. Those who want to live with God later, those who want to live with God later, which is resurrection number three, will hear him now at resurrection number one. John 8, 47 is very clear. Here's what he says. Listen close. Whoever is of God... Hears the words of God. The reason you do not hear them is that you are not of God. Goes back to the reason the bread doesn't smell hot is because you're dead. Are you of God? That's the big question. Tell me again. How do I be made of God? Can somebody tell me? Okay, let me be as clear as crystal. Let me answer on a steady foundation of somebody who's been there and has come back and let me offer you hope. Here's my answer. How do I know? How do you become of God? Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes in him who sent me has eternal life. He is, does not come into judgment, but he's passed from death to life. And so the question is, do you believe this? Do you want this? Or maybe the more important question is, does death trouble you? When I first walked in to see that guy, and I saw the tubes, I entered the darkness of this room, and this guy was, he was in despair. You could, it was clinging to him. It was like a heavy cloud. You could feel it. I thought to myself immediately, how terrible. Why is God allowing this to happen? But you know something? This man was given an amazing gift. He got to see and taste what death is like before he had to actually embrace death. He was so shocked he was able to hear. 
Remember, passion for the resurrection is directly tied to your fear of death. He had passion to hear and know because the fear of death was so real. It was so real. But for many of you, it's not. Because you want to go get your chocolate bunny. The question for you is, what number do you choose? If you choose number one, if you believe today, you get number two and three. You get number three because number two is a certainty. That's faith. Or, and this to me is sad, this is what most people choose. Do you want to trust in those who've never been to the other side and take your chances on number four? We trust cool people, man, people that can face death. You're, you sure you want to? It's ridiculous how arrogant, I'll say that we're just arrogant. We believe people who have never been on the other side. I'm going to pray for you, and as I pray, I just want you to really consider this. What number do you choose? Really, the numbers are one or four, because two and three will come to you if you choose one.